Would you open your Bibles this morning to the book of Daniel, um, chapter 9? And, you know, we've been really trying to cover about a chapter, a sermon, but uh, there's two parts to this sermon. I, I, I'm just not, not a good enough preacher to try to squeeze these two together, and I don't know that the Lord really was leading me to anyway. So we're going to study Dan, Daniel 9, 1 through 23. Next week, we're going to cover what is was often seen as a very controversial part of Scripture, and that's the 70 weeks of Daniel. Um, we're going to touch on it this morning just a tad, but that's for next week, and I would appreciate it if you'd be praying for me uh, as I prepare for that. Um, I cannot thank the Lord enough, you guys, for His providence and His guiding us to, to teach the book of Daniel at such a time as we're going through in our nation. Um, and just very uniquely last week, his providence was just tasteable uh, because it wasn't it so humbling to read of how Daniel became sick for days after he learned, after he received the vision of what was going to happen to the people of God in the future. Antioch, Antiochus Epiphanes was going to be ruthless, brutal, evil in his persecution of God's people. And it broke Daniel's heart. And then we close the service by asking God, Lord, please break our hearts with what breaks your heart. Uh, we, we don't want to just be robotic when we look at the news. We, we, we want to we we suffer with those who suffer. We want to weep with those who weep. And we want to serve in any way we possibly can. And, and I, knew, I knew there was some things happening with Afghanistan, just as you did. But weren't you shocked on Monday morning when you, when you start looking at your news feeds? And you see exactly what's happening. Kabul has fallen. Uh, already the, the announcement of the persecution, it's always been going on, but now it's rabid again from the Taliban. Um, so it just, I hope you were ready to pray. I hope God moved your hearts quickly to intercede. And why don't we just take a minute to do that this morning? Heavenly Father, our hearts are sick when we think of the suffering that our brothers and sisters go through around the world for the sake of their witness for Christ. We're so thankful that you are greater. You are greater. And we lift them up to you this morning. God, we pray for courage and strength, that you would strengthen their faith, that you would remind them that you began that relationship with them and you will lead them all the way home. Uh, Lord, would you, would you just empower their witness for Christ more now than ever? And Lord, we remember that, that Paul was once a terrorist to the church as well. And you marvelously saved him. And so we pray that, that many, many Taliban would fall, not because of civil war, but because of saving grace. And we ask this in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. Amen. This morning... We're going to find Daniel studying the book of Jeremiah, and we're going to find what he learned there, and that's that by God's sovereign grace, their time as exiles in Babylon was coming to a close. That's what he was learning through God's inspired, inerrant, sufficient word. And they were going to be able to go back to Jerusalem, and God uses his word to inspire and shape a prayer that I hope all of you will leave here marked by. I want to be more marked by this prayer. Um, and we're going to study that today. So let's read together, Daniel 9, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, 
by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that were according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near, those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us his servants through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all of the works he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned and have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among, the, among those who are around us. Now, therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and who is pleased for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate O oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open the eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, O oh hear, Lord. Forgive, O oh Lord. Pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice.' 
He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have come now, I've come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell it to you. For you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Oh, God, please. Please. Oh, God. We want to learn from this confession. And even more, we want to learn of the lavish mercy that inspires it. Please, God, write your word upon our hearts that we might be transformed into the likeness of Jesus for ministry and mission in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There's a little saying that goes like this. A little confession is good for the soul. I wondered about the origin of that phrase and found it's traced back to an old Scottish proverb. About in the 1800s, they said, they estimated it. But it, it's been misquoted. It wasn't first originated as a little confession. The original said, open confession is good for the soul. That's a difference, isn't there? There's a big difference between open confessions and little confessions. In fact, I think little confessions are one of the significant problems in our nation. I think little confessions are one of our significant problems in the local churches of the United States, at least in the evangelical world of the United States. I have no statistics to back this up, but I'm guessing that most of the confessions of wrongdoing in our world are little confessions that in essence are not even really confessions at all, but self-centered efforts to get rid of a guilty conscience or to save face or to save your reputation or to save your employment or even more and more, you're hearing even more of this. It's virtue signaling. For example, how many of us have heard a confession like this? I'm sorry if what I said hurt you. Biblical confession or no? Little confession or open confession? You know what it's saying? You know what it's saying? It's saying, you know, I'm sorry, but if you wouldn't be so easily hurt, this wouldn't have been a problem. You see, it's a subtle, it's a kind of a sophisticated blame shift, isn't it? That's a little confession. It's not a real biblical confession. How about this one? I'm sorry. I won't do it again. Please don't fire me. In other words, I'm not really sorry for what I did wrong. I'm really sorry for getting caught. And I'm really sorry about the consequences it brings to me. And I have no concern about what it did to anyone else. Little confessions. Ever hear something like this? I'm sorry, I should not have gotten angry, but what you said made me angry. <laughs> Little confession? horrible confession because where is the focus it's what you did because I'm really a pretty nice guy and if you wouldn't have pushed my button I wouldn't have been that is that anything like Daniel nothing like Daniel how about this one how about being told by others what you should be sorry for and how you need to apologize or make reparations for what others did who have no familial so here's some ways. Kenneth Young's written some great stuff about that if you want to uh, dig him up. He's given some great stuff about this. 
when we confess beyond ourselves, there's, there needs to be some sense of familial connection, institutional connection, or covenantal connection, like we're going to see in our text today. Um, for the, these relationships that you would have in these circles for wrongdoing or sin or crimes that you really have not personally done, but you're told that you need to confess anyway. How about this one last one? How about just this one? I'm sorry. Wives, how does that go over at home? When your husband said, I'm sorry, for the last three years, and there's no visible appearance of brokenness and grief for how he's broken your heart. Short and sweet. It's not sweet. (laughs) It's not sweet. A little confession is not good for the soul, a little confession isn't good for marriage. I mean, I'm just let's let the Holy Spirit just start working on us right now. What would biblical confession do to your marriage? What would biblical confession do in our nation? What would biblical confession do in our evangelism? What would biblical confession do in raising our children? As they hear mom and dad just openly not blame shift or confess, I've just proven again, son and daughter, I need a savior. That's what I've proven to you. I need a savior and I'm a great sinner, but Jesus is a greater savior, right? That's what we want to be telling them. What difference would biblical confessions make in church history, in world history? But we don't need just biblical confessions. We need mercy-motivated confessions. We need confessions that seek God's glory and not just personal gain. And I think you would agree with me that Daniel's confession that we just read embodied one of the most wonderful examples of a biblical confession that really is in all of the Bible. It's so good. So here's our main point this morning. Mercy-motivated confessions of sin restore the soul and seek God's highest glory. I think you'll see that as as the uh, passage, as we unpack it. The first point is this. God's word informs our confessions of sin. It's, It's not your feelings. It's not your justifying your behavior. God's word is the authoritative voice that tells us right from wrong. And we need a voice from above to tell us what's right and wrong because when Adam and Eve sinned, one of the perils of sinning was that that when they died in their sinful rebellion to God, they became the the court uh, that decided what is good and evil, what is right and wrong. They didn't need God to show them what's right and wrong. I'll decide what's right and wrong. God's word informs our confessions of sin. And let's see how that plays out here. You know, Daniel's a man of prayer. We saw that in chapter 2 when he, he prayed for God to give him resolve to serve under pagan leaders as far as possible, to, to do all things, to be a witness in this dark world we live in, but to be prepared to know when, it, when you have to draw a line and what's going to compromise your faith, when it's going to compromise the glory of God in Christ Jesus. So he asked for prayer then. He asked for prayer in Daniel 6. When, when prayer was made illegal, unless you just prayed to the king. And you, so you remember what he did there? He just kept praying. Three times a day he kept praying. And in Daniel 9, we're actually invited into his prayer closet, really. To hear him pray. One of the most beautiful prayers of repentance and confession. And confidence in God's mercy. So that God would receive all the glory for it. So Daniel wasn't just a man of prayer. 
I, I think this will be important to, to kind of dig into a little bit here at the beginning. He was a man of scripture-informed prayer. So can, can we just be honest with each other? How many of your prayers are illuminated and led by the word of God? No, don't get me wrong. Nothing wrong with a little help. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Even that really, we could argue, is directed by the word of God, isn't it? But how many times we pray and we're not praying according to the will of God. And it's no wonder he's not answering us because we're not praying according to his will. And then we get mad at him or we think, well, that, I tried Christianity, but that didn't work because the guy never answers my prayers. Well, yeah, but how did, I think when you were a kid and it's dinner time and you go up to mom and say, Candy, it's not praying according to mom's will, is it? Now, if you say, up. Oh, can I get him? Thank you, sister. <laughs> now, if the child says broccoli, blessings with, that, with the broccoli, right? Because you're praying in accordance with God's will. Daniel's prayer is being radically informed. And he's going to actually correct some of us about our use of Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14 in a minute here too. But he was radically informed by scripture. Eugene Peterson, a couple of things that have helped my prayer life out, and I hope this could help you. Eugene Peterson, it's in your notes. It says, at its best, prayer is never the first word. It's always the second word. God has the first word. Prayer is answering speech. It's not primarily addressing God, but it's responding to God. So well said. Um, Spurgeon, classical Spurgeon. I think I got this from Erica Truex. I think somebody put this up on some, something this week. But this is so good. When asked what is more important, prayer or reading the Bible, Charles Spurgeon would respond with his own question. What's more important, breathing in or breathing out? Oh, you guys. Anyone besides me have trouble staying focused in prayer? I never hear my stomach growl except when I'm praying. It's crazy. It's amazing when I take the posture of saying, God, how about today you speak first and I'll learn how to respond because of what you say to me. Because you're God and I'm not. I think that's what Daniel is such a good example of here. He'd been reading Jeremiah 25, 1 through 14. You can read that on your own. You're going to have the, the 29 passage in the notes, which is what was inspiring and motivating this prayer. But even the prayer itself is saturated with references to Scripture. There's, there's reference to Leviticus 26.4, Deuteronomy 28.64, Exodus 34.6, Psalm 44.14, and Jeremiah 25.11. So that's in there too. Daniel learns that Jeremiah had prophesied that God's people would be in exile in Babylon for 70 years. And given the defeat of Babylon to the Medes and Persians, he's now, he's going, wait a minute. This, so he goes back to scripture and he discovers that the exile is almost over according to Jeremiah's prophecy. The first deportation was about 605 BC. Persia then conquers Babylon in 539 and the exiles would start returning home at 538. I mean, this is amazing fulfillment of prophecy. And that's, so that's what's motivating. That's what's shaping how he prays. But let's go a little, a little deeper here. It seems Daniel understands Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14 differently. I'm sorry, I, I'm, we're going to do 10 through 14 and correct my own notes here. Um, differently than a way that it's often 
often quoted today. So here we go. Look in your notes. This is, this is God's word. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. Oh, thank you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. And yes, Lord, thank you. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Okay, context is everything, isn't it? How many of you know the other section of, of Jeremiah? How many of you know that part? For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans to bless you, and not to harm you, that plans to prosper you, to give you a future and a hope. How many, would, how many of you know that part? Right? Yeah. Now, don't raise your hands on this one, but I wonder how many of us would say, and I'm about, I think I'm about to learn how I may have used it out of context. Because um, that's, I sure have. I sure have. God said that it was 70 years that was about to come to an end and that his people were to call on him and pray to him and seek him. You answer this with all their, okay, key phrase. And if they did this, God's plan was to give them peace, to give them hope and to give them a future. So, so come on, what do you think it means to seek the Lord with all your heart? What do you think that means? Well, let's see what it meant to Daniel, because I think what it meant to Daniel, it should mean to us. Daniel understood that they needed to seek the Lord with their whole heart, because it was their hearts that were the problem in the first place. I was telling the kids this last night. You know, some people have asked me, what's your biggest challenge as a pastor? And you might think, oh, is it, is it studying? Is it not listening to your growling stomach when you pray? Is it, what is it, you know? You know what my biggest challenge is as a pastor? My own heart. You know what my biggest challenge as a dad is? My own heart. My biggest challenge as a husband, it's my own heart. That's what Daniel's getting at here. The, there's this issue of seeking the Lord with your whole heart. Why is he saying that? Because you haven't been. You haven't been seeking the Lord with your whole heart. What you've been seeking with your whole heart. Listen, this is what's, and this is rampant in the United States and in the, in, the, in the evangelical world, that we think that there's this accept, we call it Christianity, that I believe in Jesus and he's kind of my safety valve, right? He's, he's kind of my emergency guy. But what I seek with a whole heart, you name it. You fill in the blank. And we call that Christianity. That's what Israel was doing too. They, they still had a place of Yahweh in their, in their religious category. But they sought idols, not the Lord, with their whole heart. The blessings and prosperity and future hope the passage promises are not the blessings of happiness. It's the blessings of holiness. That's what their hearts most needed. And I would say, wouldn't you say that that's the blessing you most need this morning too. A pure heart, that's what I long for. We used to sing that, Alan, at Lakeview. A pure heart, that's what I long for. 
a heart that follows hard after thee. Oh, I long for that. If they were going to seek him with their whole hearts then, okay, let's let it unfold. What does that mean? They're going to seek him now with their whole hearts. They have not been seeking him with their whole heart. Where do you start to, to, to wholeheartedly follow the Lord now? Confession of sin. And I just, I got to be honest with you, I don't know too many Christians that have had that interpretation of Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14. You first start with confession and repentance. Dale Ralph Davis, wonderful commentator in the Old Testament. It's in your notes. Israel has a history of rebellion and idolatry and has suffered God's judgment for it, but it has not led them to godly grief and genuine repentance. What concerns him, it seems, is not so much the return to the land, but the kind of people who must return. What good will it do to have a people back in the land with still no sense of their sin and no exercise of repentance. A people who have never been crushed in spirit over their idolatry. So well said. So in what ways have you wanted the blessings of Jeremiah 29? Don't we all yeah, want those blessings? Without the confession and the repentance that goes with this text. In what ways have you not been giving wholehearted devotion to the Lord. Yes, take a deep breath. We're all guilty, okay? If you're visiting with us, this is not the church of the most righteous. <laughs> starting with the pastor, starting with, with this pastor. This is a church who knows we're sinners and we're trying to learn how to run as fast as we can to the cross. That's the church that we are. That's the church that we are. So because Daniel sees both their past history of rebellion and idolatry that sadly continues to exist after 70 years of exile and captivity, he seeks the Lord with his whole heart and he starts with repentance and confession. So here we go. Again, I, I, totally, I'm, I totally get it if you're visiting or this is your first or second time here, if you're just going, oh, here comes the pounding by the preacher. Surprise. God didn't pound them. He disciplined, just like a, like, like a loving parent disciplines their kids. He disciplined his kids. But the way he's wanting them to turn in repentance is by his mercy. Surprise. Isn't that good news? It's God's mercy that motivates the confession of sin. So verse 3, I turn my face to the Lord, full focus. That's full focus and attention. <laughs> it's not talking to my wife with, while I'm looking at a cell phone, shaking my head and saying, yes, dear. That, that's, that's not full focus. He's turning with full focus and attention. This is what it would be like. He's talking about the greatness of God. This is what it would be like. There's no room for ADHD, spiritual ADHD here. This is like if your living room curtains were on fire. You would be fully focused on the event taking place before you. One of the reasons we're so distracted in prayer is because we've shrunk God down to just meeting our daily needs. And they're not even really needs, most of them, as much as their wants. Oh, let's, let's look to him as the great and righteous God who, who judges sin but gives mercy for those who trust in him. 
Oh my goodness. So he's fasting. He's declaring the Lord that my spiritual need for God at this time is taking priority over physical need. It's with sackcloth and ashes. It's symbolism of being broken and contrite and repentant. And then in verse 4, he made confession to the Lord. Why? Because God was merciful. The mercy that God had shown Israel in the past provided the foundation for his confession of sin, both for himself and a representative of God's people. He's not making a confession in order to earn God. He's not making a confession in order to earn mercy, to earn forgiveness. That's not how he's making confession. He's making confession. I'm going to tell you in advance. Give us amen. <laughs> He's making a confession because God is already merciful. That's what's bringing him back to the Lord. He's not wondering if I confess. I wonder, I wonder, I hope he'll, for, he'll, I hope he'll forgive me. I hope he'll accept me. He's in New Testament sense. He's holding out nail-scarred hands. Yes, he'll be merciful to you. He's proven his mercy. Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden. And I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. I prayed to the Lord. Here's his verse 4. My God, and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. The covenant name of God here is used nine times in this chapter. It's not used anywhere else in, in the book of Daniel. Um, And what is he saying? Because he knows God keeps his covenant. His steadfast love endures forever. Don't you love those Psalms where they just keep saying it again? Those are for me. I got to thank you, Lord, for putting simple things in the Bible. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. Amen. That's what's motivating this confession. And that's what I pray begin working on your heart this morning. It's a great God of love and forgiveness and grace that would confront us in our sin. Not to destroy us, but to deliver us. Oh, it's such a joy to know he's merciful. Verse 15, it's like bookends that really speak of this mercy in the past. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, at this day we have sinned and have done wickedly. So he goes back and he says, God, they were rebellious then. They were rebellious then. They needed a Passover lamb that to, for the angel of death to pass over the sins of the guilty people. They needed a parting of a Red Sea to be delivered from their worst enemies. They, they needed mercy. And God, you were merciful to them then. That's what Daniel's hanging on. His prayer for present mercy is based upon God's record of providing past mercies. If God saved a rebellious people once through the innocent blood of a Passover lamb, I bet he'll do it again, right? It's not I bet. That's why he's praying. And so this kind of faithful and lavish mercy motivates the confession of specific and heart-controlling sin. So here we go. God's mercy motivates repentance and confession of specific sins. Verse 5, we're just going to go down. We've sinned. We've done wrong. We've acted wickedly. We've rebelled. We've turned aside from your commandments and rules. Verse 6, we've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to the kings, princes, and fathers of our people. Verse 7 and 8, to us belongs open shame because of our sin and treachery. Great guilt brings great shame. That's not in the Bible. That, I just put that to make sure. Is that in your Bible? 
Verse 10, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord by walking in his laws. Verse 11, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. Verse 13, we have not entreated the favor of the Lord, turning from our iniquities and seeking to insight from your truth. Verse 20, Daniel personally confesses sin here. There's no record of sin in the book of Daniel about him, but he's personally confessing his sin. Essentially what Daniel has done and just what we've just looked at is, is give uh, the Old Testament version of Romans 3.23 which says, for, say it with me, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no blame shifting here. He's now come to grips with his sin just like David and he's now saying against you God and you alone have I sinned. That's what's happening here. So precious ones, This is the world you're living in. This is the air you're breathing. When you leave here, I mean, just this week, I, 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 because I'm studying this, but so I was maybe more aware. I heard four on, on news broadcasts from political figures, sports figures, movie figures, all this little confessions. Used words like this. Well, it was a mistake. It was inappropriate action. It was indiscretions. It was an error in judgment. I could have done better. I didn't live up to my own standards. This really wasn't like the real me. It was a bad decision. Biblical mercy motivated confession is more than I'm sorry. I've, I've told you guys, I've sinned against my precious wife more than I, I would even want God to show me, but it's a lot. And there were so many days it was just, I'm sorry. And it sounded so impotent, so weak, because I kept sinning against her. And I've had some older Christian brothers in my life that have come alongside me and gotten real, real with me. And this is, this is how my confessions have changed to her. Compare just the I'm sorry with this. Sweetheart, I am so sorry that I sinned against you in my impatience and anger. I'm so sorry for justifying my anger by blaming you when I should have been responding to the Lord for how he would have wanted me to respond as his representative to you. I'm sorry for calling you the name I called you. That's probably making you go. <laughs> That's the only problem with these testimonies. It, it wasn't as bad as you think, but it, it, it anyway, I'm sorry. Um, sweetheart in no way do I think about you day by day moment by moment but at that time I meant what I said because I wanted to win the argument even if it hurt you biblical confession I think it's better I think it's better follow up with that by saying I will make myself accountable to one of my brothers for what I've done here and I'm going to ask his help so that I will not continue to sin against you like that. God's mercy really produces a godly sorrow that brings true repentance and that's in that same section. Did you notice that you can tell Daniel's repentant because he says again and again and again they deserved the captivity and exile and discipline of the last 70 years. Um, And so he unpacks that with more scripture in there. He's just saying we are getting what we deserve. Sound a little bit like the cross with Christ and the thief? Mocking him and then one, one is now convicted of his own sin. He's repentant and he says what? 
hey, we deserve what we're getting on this cross. He didn't deserve this. That's what's happening here. That's, how can you know if somebody's truly repentant? Because they're, they're willing to say, I deserve God's discipline. I deserve what I'm getting. I deserve that. He's confirmed in his words what he spoke against us in the law of Moses by bringing us into such a great calamity. The Lord's kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he's done. We've become a byword to the nation, scorned and mocked and laughed at by the other pagan nations, much like is happening with the United States right now. We are not calling to you because we don't like the consequences of our actions. That's not what he's doing. We're not calling you to say, hey, bail me out or beam me up. We're, we're not trying to escape the consequences of our actions. Just like, <laughs> just like Joshua and Micah did. Just, I'm going to guess your kids did too. Daddy, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Don't spank me. Don't spank me. We just get more sophisticated as adults, right? The way we say it. We're always, you guys, in the category of sinner and sufferer. And some of us have suffered greatly from the sins of others. And yet, ultimately, it's us who is responsible for our sin, right? Ultimately, it's us who is responsible for my sin. If, is it my upbringing that's responsible? My surroundings? My lack of education? My lack of opportunities? My parents? My spouse? My kids? My work? My church? Our government? No. Ultimately, I am responsible for my sins. And again, another older brother in the Lord took me aside and told me this. He said, Billy, you speak with more passion about the guilt of your parents' sins against you than you do about your own sins against God. Oh my goodness, you guys. That, that was, that, I still, sorry, it affects me now. He asked me to consider whether the difference in my passion indicated that I placed more blame on their sins for my life than I placed on my sins about the condition of my life. You see in this prayer of Daniel, we deserve, we've broken your commands. Fourth point, God's mercy in our confession is not merely for our gain, but for his glory. Verse 17, now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary. Notice that. And for your sake, O Lord. O God, incline your ear. Open your eyes. See our desolations in the city. This is 18. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. That's why we're here. 19b, O Lord, pay attention and act. Do not delay for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. There's another song that we have. I don't think we've sung this for a while, but it says, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name. Bring glory. I don't think I pray that very many times when I'm confessing my sin. God, I'm coming before you and I'm asking that you forgive me. But not, not primarily for my sake, but for the glory of your name. That's what he's doing here. We're not asking for mercy for our gain, but your glory. We're not looking for relief for our happiness, but for a revival of holiness. God, you've chosen to call your people by your name. You've chosen to stake your reputation of steadfast love in being faithful to us. Do you know we all have the same name here? I love looking at your faces. You have the best faces, you guys. 
Do you know we all have the same name? Somebody say it. I'll give you a dollar. Christians! We all have the same name. God has staked his reputation by putting his name on us in our salvation. He staked his reputation of faithfulness. He staked his reputation of steadfast love. He staked his reputation of never getting, giving up on you and leading you all the way home. That's his promise. Amen. I'm so glad that it's about his glory, which ultimately is our joy, isn't it? When we seek his glory for even the confession of our sin. And the last point is this. God's mercy is more, and we sang that this morning. And it restores the soul both now and forever. And here's, I just, I hope you see this. I'm going to try to go through it just expediently, but hopefully reverently. Verses 20 through 23, amazing passages. And I don't know that you're, that you're going to experience the lavish love. I don't know that there's too many passages, maybe you can remind me, where actually you're reading your Bible and you literally see it say, I love you. Now, the cross says it all day long, right? Cross says it all day long. God is love. We, he first loved us. So there's plenty of passages. But, but this is personal and specific. I don't know that there's a more vivid expression of God saying I love you than right here. At least in the Old Testament. The moment so now, here's what Gabriel's saying to Daniel. The moment your confession first left your lips and your words were heard, in the blink of an eye, Gabriel flew there. Remember, it says, with fast flight. Why? Because he doesn't want you to linger a second longer and you're being convicted of sin. He wants you to be more aware of his mercy than you are of your sin. He wants you to be more aware of his grace than you are of your sin. He wants you to be more aware of his forgiveness than you are of your sin. And he'll fly to you in a nanosecond to tell your heart how much he loves you. I love this part because I struggle. I look in the mirror. I look in my own mirror physically, but I look in this mirror and I can't understand how he keeps loving me with all I continue to do, even as an aging Christian who's a pastor. I can't believe it. And, I, and a, a verse like this hits me like, oh God, thank you that you do love me, not on the basis of my works, but on the basis of Christ alone. And so I know that that love will endure forever. That's what's happening here. But God's mercy is more. More than Daniel can think of or imagine. How can Daniel know that God's mercy will not be exhausted in the future? Is there any promise from God about a yet future expression of mercy. So for those of you who have some, some you know, you got, you've looked at the 70 weeks of Daniel thing. The I love you of this chapter is rooted and grounded in that prophecy. That's how, because what's Daniel saying? Oh, please be merciful to us, God. And Gabriel comes and he says, yes, God's been merciful in the past. He's going to be merciful now, but he's never going to run out of mercy. And you know why? Let me tell you what's coming in the future. 
And that's the 70 weeks of Daniel. That's what's happening in the 70 weeks of Daniel. So the intended, so let me tell you this now, and I'm going to say it again next Sunday. The intended redemptive effect of the 70 weeks of Daniel is not to try to set a date for Christ's return. It's not to start arguments between which eschatological camp is right. It kills me that we've done that to this passage. God is making a promise to Daniel that his mercy will be more than he can imagine because it will not be founded upon the sacrifices of bulls and goats and lambs, but in the coming sacrifice of the Messiah who will be cut off, crucified, slain, buried, and rise again. There is going to be more mercy than we can imagine with this first coming of Christ. And his mercy is more than that. Because in the 70 weeks of Daniel, it's not just a picture of the saving first coming of Jesus. It's also a picture of the victorious second coming of Jesus, where each and... I'm really getting excited. (laughs) The second coming of Jesus. I just... See, Willa, where are you? This is when I dance. You know? Sweetheart, because... Not only has he saved me from my worst sin, my my worst problem, and that's the sin judgment I deserved, but he's promised me that he's coming again. And he's promised me that I'm going to stand in the presence of the merciful one for all of eternity. Would you stand? (sighs) Worship team, would you guys come? Um... Again, we're getting closer. It's, it's, you know, it's quitting time. I hate it. Um, I, I think if you need to go, totally understandable. Please feel released to go. But I just think it would be good if we stayed, if you can. Because your soul is, this is about your soul. This is about God wanting to restore your soul. This is about God wanting to remind you of the depth of his mercy. So that you can quit. Zeke, it was almost like your testimony. You just kept shoving those sins kind of back here. They really weren't that big a deal. You didn't even probably even recognize them as sins when they're back here. But then when you're learning about the love of God and you you realize, I have sinned against perfect love. It's not just been a judicial thing I've done against God. It's a personal thing I've done against Him. And He personally loves you. He personally loves you. So I don't know how the Lord would be moving in your heart today about where you are not wholeheartedly serving the Lord. Some of you checked out a while ago, and I'm not trying to get weird with you. Some of you checked out a while ago because you have no intention of putting Christ first in your life. You think it's good enough to have him on the side while you pursue your earthly comforts. I would say you're in danger because that's not Christianity. God deserves wholehearted worship, wholehearted obedience because he wholeheartedly gave Jesus for us. Amen. I didn't look to see who's praying today. So whoever is up for prayer this morning, would you come and please, please, precious ones, this is a passage on prayer.
if you would want to pray with someone this morning, come and come and pray. If you want to, if you, you know, sometimes some of us just like to get on our knees. If you just want to come and meet with God, nothing magical about that. It's just responding in humility. I think some of us maybe would say, oh Lord, I should have done this months ago. Thanks for not giving up on me. Amen.